Ladies and gentlemen, can you believe it? Season four of Chewing the Gristle, the greatest podcast that ever was. Well, that might be bold, but I like it. What is Chewing the Gristle? Well, doggone it, we've got a whole bunch of internationally renowned musical guests, mostly guitar players, I believe. <laughs> Not that other people who play other instruments aren't musicians as well, but we're a little biased towards the six-stringed variety around here. Brought to you by our friends at Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, where, of course, I've been doing videos for over 10 years. They have so many guitars, it'll tempt your mind, body, and soul. You better be careful. And our friends at Fishman Transducers, bringing you state-of-the-art accoutrements for amplifying your acoustic instruments to sound the best they possibly can. Doggone it. And let's face it, their fluence guitar pickups, especially those with the gristletone moniker, are ass kicking. Let's get to it. Season four, Chewing the Gristle, we ride. Chewing the Gristle this week, a fiery guitarist and a hell of a nice guy, Tom Quayle, hailing from Fair Albion. We spent some quality time this last summer. We're going to discuss all things musical and we'll talk about Bucky's, the immortal truck stop of doom. Ladies and gentlemen, this week, we're going to chew that gristle with Tom Quayle. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, another installment of Chewing the Gristle is nigh. We have the mightiest of Tom Quayles tuning in from Fair Albion. It's evening there. Of course, Thomas is a, uh, I would say, a uh, legato improvisizer, improvisizer. I don't know what I'm trying to say, but you're uh, an extraordinary Musician, improviser, composer, cat, if you will. And it was so much fun to be able to hang with you last year and get to know you a bit and uh, and go to Bucky's, which, of yeah. course, should be uh, on the list for everybody coming over. Absolutely. To go and get your meat fix. Exactly. So how you doing? What's happening? I'm very good. Very good. Very good. It's freezing cold over here at the moment, and nobody dares put their heating on because it costs so much money. So I'm sat in the freezing cold. But other than that, I'm very good. Very good indeed. Yeah. Yes, it's weird that it's, you know, we're actually experiencing a slight warm spell here. By that, it's it's in the, uh, it's in the like 40s-ish. So that's pretty warm, but it'll soon dip again. Let's just say it's not conducive weather for guitar playing right now over here. Yes, At yes. All. Takes a while to warm the fingers up. So what have you been up to these days? What's What's the latest? Uh, so I've been doing a few things basically. Um, so a year and a half ago, I think, uh, we released my business partner and I released an app called Solo, which has been doing crazy well on the app store for iOS devices and Android devices. And we've just finished shooting like a huge course on visualizing the fretboard for that. So that's taken up a huge amount of time. This course is like five and a half hours long. I think we may have gone overboard slightly. Wild. So it's a big video course. So we've been doing that. It's taken a very long time to put together. Um, in the midst of doing that, I've also put together a new um, kind of like playing and improvisation package for Jamtrack Central. I know you do a lot of stuff with Truefire, so you've got a lot of experience with this. So that's been good fun. Um, putting some stuff together with my buddy Martin Miller as well, because we're going to be doing some new videos together and doing some clinic stuff later in the year as well. So lots of stuff. It's been good. Been good. Yeah. Nice. Tell me a little bit more about that app. Yeah. So basically, I, without going into too much detail about this, I have a weird, what's well, not weird, I'd say quite a unique way of thinking about the fretboard to do with um, what I call intervallic functions, which is basically visualizing the fretboard in terms of intervals. So really the smallest shape possible that you can utilize to, or shapes that you can utilize to visualize the fretboard. Guitar is kind of this beast that we visualize large structures with. Right. And they're great because they give you access immediately to certain sounds. So if you want to play a melodic minor scale, you can learn like a big shape for the melodic minor scale. And it's really good because it's like instant access. It's the keys to the Ferrari really quickly. But it's really hard then to move beyond that if you start to play over chord changes and outline, you know, chord changes and imp improvisation. That requires more detail than those large shapes will give you. 
to get really into the nitty gritty of the harmony and to be able to outline things well. So what the app does is it basically trains you, it listens to what you're playing and it asks you to play a series of intervals over lots and lots of different chord changes. Ah. So there's a load of jazz standards built in there, a load of common chord progressions, two, five, ones, one, six, two, fives, all of the standard chord progressions, plus all the kind of jazz standards and a bunch of other stuff as well. And it asks you to play certain intervals over these chords so that you start to, as a guitar player, always think about how every note that you play actually relates to the harmony and not just visualize a large shape and just play up and down the large shape kind of with your eyes closed and using your emotions to emote. Sometimes it is really good to actually think about how the notes that you play relate specifically to the harmony that you're playing. Yeah, cool. That's what, it, that's what it's designed to do, basically. Um and we've got a version two coming out very soon. So that's been taking up a huge amount of my time. But I, d- I don't want to make this sound like an advert for the app. So I just No, no, no it's fascinating. I mean, it's, it's not It's not in every interview I talk to somebody, I go, I've got an app. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, cool. yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's been an interesting process, like working with a developer who was a sort of a guitar player, could play some chords, you know, knew some bar chords, knew some scales, a wonderful man who uh, was working for one of the big tech companies on the West coast of the USA. And uh, I won't say which is, cause I'm not supposed to say, but he's, he's been working for a really big tech company over there as one of their head iOS, iOS developers. And this guy now has the weirdest like jazz harmony knowledge of any human being in the world. Cause he only knows what he needs to know to be able to make the app work. But then there's these massive holes where we've like, well, you don't need to know that just, you just need to know this stuff to get the app to work. So it's been quite an interesting process, but um yeah, trying to communicate harmony to somebody who is not, you know, it's not like a schooled process. You've got to do it as quickly and efficiently as possible so they can do that work is really strange because harmony is things that has to be taught in usually quite a specific order in order that someone doesn't get confused. So the poor guy has now got this really, really strange understanding of jazz harmony, but it's the perfect amount for somebody who needs to program an app like that. So Ah, very interesting. Very strange. Do you think... You know, I, I've noticed that there there seems to be a um, uh, a, a pretty massive desire and quantity of people that, in addition to having all of the free material that's available on the internet and uh, YouTube and other platforms and so on and so forth, uh, they still buy stuff. I mean, they still want you know content that is is gated, if you will. And um, I guess it kind of uh, disproves the idea. Well, with everyone giving away free stuff, no one's going to buy the other stuff. It doesn't really seem to be the case. Yeah, well, I mean, it's one of those things, isn't it, where there's, if you go on YouTube, you know, there's so much stuff available, but it's not organized in any way, shape, or form. Right. So how do you go from A to B to C to D, you know, so on and so forth? Um it's really difficult. There's no set path through any of that stuff. So as the person who's consuming it, you're just negotiating your own pathway with no guidance at all. Whereas I think one of the nice things about your material or my material or anybody who's curated specific courses is that you have this kind of uh, goal-oriented kind of system where you say, okay, well, I want to achieve this and Greg's got this course on that, hybrid picking or improvising over whatever. And you can see what's in the course and it takes you from A to Z, you know, and you can... Or Z, I should say Z. Um, <laughs> basically giving you that information in a structured way. And obviously you trust the person who's teaching that material to you or you're a fan or whatever. So I think it's still, I think there will always be a place for that kind of stuff. Unless somebody, somebody needs to make an app where they basically curate. Well, they don't, because this would be really annoying for people like you and I, but they need to make an app where they curate the material on YouTube into a course so that somebody can find a course on hybrid picking. And then there's like 70 videos that take oh, oh there you go. Someone yeah. else has curated. So <laughs> free app idea for anybody out there who can be bothered to make it. You know, just for the sake of those who are uninitiated, uh, how would you describe a legato style of playing? Um, so, well, I guess the, the term, at least I think this is right, I always get told off when I go to Italy to do any classes or anything, but uh, <laughs> I think it means smooth. So the, the 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 technical term it's a little different on guitar than it is on other instruments, you know. But uh, it is the kind of the smoothest technical sound that you can get out of the instrument. Um, so it's primarily a left hand approach. This feels strange telling you about this technique because, of course, you know about this technique. But um, 
it's it's a left hand prim- primarily a left hand approach where you you're kind of utilizing the, the the most amount of hammer-ons and pull-offs possible trying to maximize the number of notes that you play on each string within reason and um in my case legato means not only a smooth sound but the dynamics of the sound when i'm playing lines obviously not when i'm improvising melodies but when i'm playing lines i try to keep the the level or the volume of each note as smooth as possible so i always use the kind of analogy of like an old moog synth where or a harpsichord, no matter how hard you hit the note, you've got no difference in like velocity or volume of the note. And with my lines, I'm trying to disguise all of the string changes because those are where the volume increases because you have to pick the new string to get energy into it. Mm-hmm. Trying to keep those picked string changes as, as dynamically close as possible to the hammer-ons and pull-offs as I'm playing. So it gives you this almost sort of synth-like kind of sound, which I always found attractive. I don't know why I found the sound of synths more attractive than guitar. I don't think that is the case. But um, <laughs> I really like that sound. So for me, players like Alan Holdsworth, uh, right. Gar said, all the famous legato players that people will be aware of um, were, were my influences growing up. So that sound really appealed to me. And of course, uh, not that this should go without saying, but my my picking skills are very underdeveloped compared to my left-hand skills. So uh, it made sense for me to become a legato player because uh, I remember years ago seeing an interview with John Schofield where he was saying, basically some somebody was saying like, they're asking him, he had like a, uh, a cigarette or a fag as we call them in the UK, which is yes. probably, I don't know, that's what we call them for some reason, sticking out of his mouth and someone said, how come you don't pick all your notes like a lot of the jazz guys do? Because jazz guys in the early days were known for picking almost everything. Sure, Absolutely in order to get the kind of accents they wanted to accent the upbeats as they were going. And it would sounded more like a horn if they were kind of, you know, accenting those upbeats. Uh, and someone said to him, why don't you pick all of the notes that you're playing? And he said, cause I can't. And that was like, okay, you're allowed if you can't to not pick all the notes and still sound great. Cause he sounds absolutely amazing. Absolutely. Yep. So for me coming from a jazz background, after I went through my shred phase, had a big, big jazz phase and saw this was a legitimate thing to do. It was like, okay, well, this is fine. So I started to think, okay, well, this is cool. I can develop my legato playing and still play through changes and still have decent time feel and, you know, still be legit as it were. If I'm, if I, I'm not, I don't know if I am legit, but. Oh yeah. Well, you know, what's interesting about this, that, that you mentioned that is because when I was, uh, when I was a youngin, um, you know, it was mostly initially it was, uh, you know, uh, blues and rock players and a little, you know, chicken picking thing. But I was starting to get into some jazz guys and it just seemed, you know, you're listening to George Benson and it's like, you know, he's picking all that stuff. And you're like, this is impossible, you know? And, um, and then right around the time, and then I was into Steve Morris and this is right around the time where Steve Morris was winning, you know, every year, the guitar player magazine poll. And you'd listen to the Dixie drags and you're like, these songs are impossible, you know? And, and he was like a very much a, um, an extremist with, uh, with, um, you know, there was no cheating. It was all alternate picking. And so it was just kind of this, this dogma of like, yeah, in order to be that guy, you've got to master this, this alternate picking thing. And then I heard Holsworth and I was like, well, now this is completely astounding. But for some reason in my mind, I just assumed he was picking everything, even though it doesn't sound like he's picking everything, but because that dogma was already kind of put in my brain, I just assumed that when I heard, you know, Holdsworth do his thing and then you start hearing, you know, you know, Steve Vai come along and he's doing these, you know, uh, spider-like, you know, gymnastics with his left hand. Uh, you're thinking, well, he's probably, you know, everyone's, everyone's picking, you know what I mean? <laughs> and then it wasn't until late, you know, and I had a few things that I would do and like, well, well I guess that's kind of cheating, but I think it sounds cool. So I'm going to, I'm going to keep doing it, even though it's probably not sanctioned by the pick police. And I didn't really, I didn't really realize until much later that in fact, you know, this legato style of playing was based on the fact that, you know, it's mostly, as you just described, a left-hand technique where you, you pick and use a little bit of hybrid picking when necessary, but it's mostly to get that smooth flow, uh, with your left hand that you, it allows you to do these, you know, really lightning fast, but glorious sounding, very smooth sounding lines. Uh, I'm a slow learner that way. It's like, I, I have these little, I was like, Oh my God, I had no idea. <laughs> I mean, it, the thing is for me, it was initially like my introduction to legato was all about, you, you mentioned Steve Vai 
Jess Satriani, like really famous for legato, just you know. So that was that was my early introduction to that kind of sound via the kind of rock shreddy shreddy kind of guys. But once once I went to jazz school, uh, immediately my my kind of ethos was I've got to throw that all out the window because that's not the thing I'm doing anymore. I got properly kind of jazz mindset. Everything had to be authentic and legit, and very quickly realized that I don't know why it is but some techniques are very difficult for certain people. And I had tons of raw speed when it came to uh, picking, which was cool when I was 15. Like it was like, yeah, I've got loads of speed. But actually when it came to playing lines, playing bebop lines and articulating well, there was it was just not happening at all. I couldn't do it. And it was an eternal source of frustration. Hours and hours and hours spent trying to play this stuff. And then coming out of that after three years, and having gone through the course and actually being able to play really well over changes and have good time feel, but still having big problems with articulation and with kind of tension in my right hand, doing lots of gigs where I would walk off the gig and just think, again, my technique has let me down, just things not quite working. That sense of frustration led to me going back and checking out that legato sound again. And again, I was aware of uh, Schofield and some of these other guys. But then there was this kind of seminal moment I remember really well, hearing Holdsworth play on. There's an, I don't know if you've heard Velvet Darkness. No, I don't think so. It's a, a, not a well, particularly well-known Holdsworth album, but he plays acoustic on this album, which oh. in and of itself is really strange. But he doesn't play any differently on this album to how he would. You know, the lines are the same. The, the kind of technique is the same. He's not picking any more than he did on other albums particularly, but he's playing an acoustic. So this kind of flagged up in my mind, well, this doesn't appear to be, for someone like him, guitar-specific, a sort of guitar setup-specific technique, because there's this mindset that, you know, you've got to have super light gauge strings, it's got to have a really low action, you've got to have a really modern guitar with like a slammed action and a really kind of uh, flat radius. Right. And it actually turned out that none of this stuff is true. If you've got good, consistent technique and the guitar is set up consistently, Right. Actually, one of the best guitars for playing legato is an arch top with, with kind of flat wound, heavy gauge, well, heavy, you know, like either 11 to 52 or 12, 12 gauge strings, because you've got this consistency to the string when you play. It's not writhing around like spaghetti when you play it. So when you pull off, it doesn't move, but it's got this kind of, um, you know, arch tops are really easy to play for some reason. I actually don't know why they feel easy to play. I've got no idea why, but they they feel superb for legato for some reason. So in my mind, then it became legit. You could do this. It was absolutely cool. So as well as doing it for the sound, it became a really, for me, it became the way that I could articulate myself on the instrument. All of those kind of considerations of, I can't play bebop. Okay, I'll accept that. Tick, can't do that. That's fine. I understand it, but I can't articulate it. Well, now I've got this technique that allows me to articulate in a way that works for me. Right. That's a real big light bulb moment for me. One of the things I love about your playing so much is that you make so many different sounds on the instrument. And that's the way that you articulate. You know, you articulate through this kind of wide palette of sounds. And I think for me, I found a way of articulating that was this smaller palette of sounds, but allowed me to articulate in a way that felt comfortable for me all the time. And that was the legato technique for me. Ah. Sorry to go on about it, but yeah, that's that's how that worked. Well, thank you for those kind words. God bless you. But yeah, it's 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 an interesting thing. You know, the, the whole you know, the, the jazz school experience, you know, that, that we could have a whole separate, separate podcast. You know, I, I would say that, you know, a lot of it was, you know, as my wife said, that's on you. A lot of it was my own attitude of, of allowing, um, not being confident enough, I guess, in what I was doing in my vision to allow myself to get affected by people saying, well, that music's not legitimate because it's not, you know, bebop and so on and so forth. And you get a little chip on your shoulder. And, but, but I, but I was, um, you know, I wanted to know how to play over changes. Um, and I had no delusions about going to school and thinking, well, I'm going to learn every standard in the book. And I just wanted to be literate. So I wanted to be able to understand harmony to the point where I could improvise, you know, when, when those altered chords would happen, I wouldn't be there noodling on a blue scale, wondering why it didn't fit, you know? And, uh, and then I also wanted to, you know, have the literacy to be able to notate and read music at some kind of professional level. And, and I did, uh, experience those things. And then from, you know, from a technical point of view, um, you know, it was a real struggle for me as well to do the alternate picking. Cause I, you know, I've said this many times, it's, you know, all the guys that I was into, I mean, when I first 
I started playing guitar when I was 12, I think so 1979 ish. Right. And uh, so this is MTV came online, I think like 1980, 81 ish. And that was really the first time where, you know, on Sunday nights when MTV first came out, it was uh, the first time you could see all the rock movies that they'd only show on the cool part of town at like midnight. You know what I mean? Where I was too young to go. You know, Song Remains the Same, Zeppelin, you know, the Goodbye Cream concert, Yes Songs, um, you know, Hendrix, uh, uh, Jimmy Plays Berkeley. And so every Sunday night, they'd have a different one featured and I'd get out my VHS thing and I'd record these things and I would watch you know, specific, you know, Creamier Clapton Hendrix was my thing, right? So I'd be watching these guys, but I was also watching Jimmy Page and and um and wondering, God, you know, when they play leads, they're they're all downstrokes. I mean, when they when they play chords, you know, they're going back and forth, they're strumming, uh, or if they're doing some kind of a double stoppy thing or triple stop you know, thing during a solo, they're strumming, but all of their single note lines were <laughs> were downstrokes. So I found my that's what I did. Until I got to college, I was like, well, you really need to alternate pick. I couldn't even tremolo pick originally. I was like, what the hell is this? And and then finally, uh, I was like, well, it's got to be the pick. You know what I mean? It's, that's got to be it. So I, <laughs> so I went through the whole, you know, the really heavy, large, regular size Dunlap picks. And I finally ended up on the little jazz threes with the pointy edge and so on and so forth. But still, for years, what I found, um, what would happen is, is that if I had to do any kind of legit you know, more of a traditional grip approach where my hands were more, you know, fingers were more per perpendicular to the strings and my thumb was, you know, placed in a more kind of a traditional grip on the guitar instead of more of a, you know, the horizontal rock thing with the thumb over. Um, I would have a, a completely different body language when I'd go from one to the next. So blues, rock, whatever, funk, I, I'm, I'm loose. It, I'm letting the good times roll. All of a sudden, oh, I got to do some single note passages going, I change the way I hold the pick. I change the way my left hand is and I just completely stiffen up. And, and then I find myself, why can't I do any of this shit? And, and so I'd always say in order for me to play any of that stuff, I've got to warm up. I, the other stuff I don't need to warm up for. I can just grab a guitar and go. And then it's kind of funny because this, the, my revelation happened maybe a dozen years ago or so. But, um, uh, I was thinking to myself, why can't I do this? What, what, what is the problem? And, and, and I thought to myself, well, there's guys like Jimmy Bryant, you know, in, 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 uh, Joe Maphis, you know, these old country cats who were bluegrass influenced originally and could pick so fast and so clean on a clean sounding guitar. I'm like, what the hell? Why, how is this possible? And, uh, and so I, I, I went on, um, YouTube and they had videos of these guys. Finally, I could see them. And, and that was the most amazing thing is that they're sitting back on a chair. The loosest body language you've ever seen. And their right hand is just barely moving. And it was loosey goosey as the day is long. And so just seeing that to me made me realize, well, you're going about it all wrong. You're, you're, I, I realized that I was, uh, I had the same amount of energy, a lot, too much of it going down on each finger on the fretboard as I was trying to do this stuff and just tensing up. And I realized just loosey goosey and just the, just a, little spurt of energy when you need it on and i would almost like you know as soon as i hit a note kind of back off a little bit so i'd kind of like you know make each note more staccato kind of and it kind of sounded like maybe that's the way that pat martino did it where the notes are real but then i, I realized i didn't have to press down hard at all and so now i'm able to do that stuff without you know uh warming up per se because it's because the body language is so much looser but it's it's just such a weird thing that we go through all of this stuff, constantly analyzing stuff. But I don't know about you, but I'm always at the mindset of, well, if it can be done, it can be done. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, this, this is actually part of my problem because I am of that mindset. So I convince myself, probably rightly, if I spend enough time with it, that it is still totally possible for me at the age of, you know, getting towards my mid-40s, that I could actually go, okay, I'll put the work in and I'll learn how to alternate pick properly. And I mean in the way that, that like, you know, uh, Steve Morse or Andy Wood, our buddy, picks. You right. know, proper oh, yeah. picking. Because there's a big difference between me taking uh, some of the old kind of three-note per string rock kind of like scalic runs. I can do those, but I cannot cross-pick for my life. Like if you ask me to pick single single note, single note on, a, on a single string, uh, sorry, across three strings, do those banjo roll picking kind of ideas, using alternate picking, immediately the tension through my arm is just insane. Uh, 
And one of the problems I've had is that I learned to to alter a pick um, in my initial stages when I was 15. No teacher, nothing, completely self-taught. My my sort of generation thing was to buy the tab books and learn from the records. So you would learn, you know, or you would learn by transcribing by ear from the records. So what I would do is I would learn all of these phrases, but I couldn't really see what was happening too much. And I wouldn't worry, I wouldn't know too much about the arm position, about what was going on. So I just found a way of doing it. And I developed a flick in my wrist, an upwards flick when I was changing strings in a downward direction. So I now have this weird thing where I can pick really, really quickly crossing strings using an upstroke, but I cannot pick using a downstroke to change strings in either direction. So this means that my technique only works 50% of the time. Uh-huh. And that flick happens when I do the downstroke to change strings. Now I know why it's happening. I know how to fix it. I've had sort of loads of people that loads of people said to me, go and watch Troy Grady's videos, go and watch about downward pick slanting. So I went and watched all this stuff and I was like, okay, right, I'll try and fix this. And spent about a month trying to fix it. And it actually was starting to go really well. And then when I went back to using my technique, my hybrid picking was all over the place. Uh-huh. I terrified myself by thinking, if I keep going down this road, I'm going to, I mean, I don't know if this would have been the case, but I got worried that I'm messing up the angle of the middle finger on the right hand against the strings. And this is causing me issues when I go back to my legato playing. And I didn't want to have to shift between two positions for two different techniques because I've been playing with this particular right hand position for such a long time now, you know, probably a decade and a half, two decades with this particular legato style right hand position that I just couldn't, I was terrified. I was going to kind of ruin my technique. And then I would be this person who was stuck between these two kind of limbo, shoddy, (laughs) two shoddy techniques and stuck in the middle. So I was like, okay, it's so strange. The stuff that goes through your head when you're doing this, you know, Um, and especially with my, I mean, I don't know how you found it, but certain little things got baked into my technique from the, you know, at the age of 15 to 18, when I was doing really silly amounts of playing and practice, probably not even knowing what I was doing. I was just playing insane amounts and developing sort of the, the very base level core stuff about my technique. And now I find that very, very difficult to get rid of. Ah, So it's actually a really good reason why a, a very good teacher at that point from a technique standpoint, I think is a good thing. Not always, because if you want to spoon the pick around like Pat Matheny, then that's great because he sounds so unbelievably good. Right. But you look at his technique and it's really odd. So odd techniques can be really great for people. But I kind of wish I'd gone to a teacher for just a little bit of picking direction at that point and not developed the horrible TQ wrist flick technique. That uh, uh, interesting. It's an interesting thing. Yeah. And then at, <clears throat> at some point you're just like, well, this is this is what I do. This is my bag of tricks. Well, not bag of tricks, but this is my voice of how I play. My this is kind of how I approach it, and that's and that's cool. I can add more stuff to that soup, but this is kind of my my lane, and that's not a wrong thing. I mean, absolutely. I, you know, and there, there was a this. I think this is actually a really interesting benchmark for me because in that period between coming out of jazz college, being in a very kind of jazz mindset, and not sounding bad as a jazz musician but certainly not sounding the way I wanted to sound. I mean, like a lot of guys that come out of college at the time, I wanted to be, I wanted to sound like Pat Metheny. I wanted to sound like Kurt Rosenwinkel. I wanted to sound like all my heroes, Adam Rogers, whoever. And it just wasn't happening because they were all much more right-hand based players than I was ever going to be. And every gig I did, I would walk away, like I said, frustrated, possibly too frustrated. You can be too much of a critic of yourself, but you know, when I listen back to the recordings of those gigs on mini discs back in the early days, I was like, I listen back now and I think, yeah, the time feels good, but you can hear that there's issues all the time with with kind of the right hand. So I would always walk out of gigs frustrated and never liked listening to my own playing. Whereas since that legato transition happened in like 2005, 2006, uh, I now don't have any problems listening to my own playing at all. Not because I'm a narcissist and I love my own playing, but because I don't have the level of frustration with my playing sure i used to have and as you get older that changes as well as you come to accept more of your own foibles and so on and so forth but i don't go and do you know play music in front of people now and have that kind of level of tension and i don't it doesn't take me hours and hours and hours to get to the point where oh my god i think my technique is working now and i can actually articulate and express myself and obviously it's not all about technique by any stretch but 
I'd say two things on that from my point of view. I am known for a particular technique, so people tend to want to see it. And secondly, if your if your technique is not happening, well, that puts you in headspace territory, and you you need to be out of that headspace territory to right. have the time and to you know to to express yourself well. So, yeah, thankfully that doesn't happen so much these days. We interrupt this regularly scheduled gristle-infested conversation to give a special shout-out to our friends at Fishman Transducers, makers of the Greg Koch Signature Fluence Gristle Tone Pickup Set. Can you dig that? And our friends at Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, bringing the heat in the shadow of the Rocky Mountains. I like it. So... When you got out of uh, school, um, as I, I say the same thing, I, when I was at jazz school, because <laughs> that's, I mean, I went, it was university. We, I mean, was there other curriculum there as well? Was it strictly a conservatory or was it a college? Yeah, yeah. No, it was a, a strict, they did uh, jazz, uh, classical, and a contemporary music, whatever that means, kind of course. So there were three three courses at the time. It was a conservatory, yeah. Ah, uh, interesting. Okay. And, um, and so your vision going in versus what you wanted to do when you were on the way out were they pretty consistent or did things change um well i went in as naive as a lot of people do i went in with like a blue flame topped rg with like ibanez rg with gold hardware and very swiftly sold that and bought a 175 okay there you go (laughs) yeah I, i basically wore the jazz suit for three three four years um and i i actually had a great time at jazz college. I know some people who went in and they had a real struggle, really struggled with it because it is a, by, by its nature, jazz is a highly, this is probably the wrong word, but it's a highly meritocratic kind of music because the barrier to entry is very high just because it's a, you know, it's a high art form of, of music. You know, the improvisation through chord changes and the language is very hard to get to grips with for a lot of people, including, I found it very difficult and when I went in, I didn't realize how high that barrier to entry is because I'm not somebody who is a purely ear-based player. My kind of um, relative pitch is is pretty decent because I've been playing music for a long time. So eventually you start to, you know, it starts to develop naturally. But in the UK, um, I don't know what it's like in the States, but in the UK, we have a very different setup to the guys on the continent in Europe in that they're taught uh, ear training as kids using solfege from a very, very early age. Ah, interesting. So by the time they get to, to university or college or whatever, you know, um, undergraduate course level, uh, most people who've actually gone on to study music in any form have already done huge amounts of ear training, even before they've started secondary school or high school or whatever. So it's already a thing that's really in their mind. Whereas I'd not done any kind of conscious ear-based, you know, material or training up until I went to jazz college. So I was already a little bit behind in that respect. But, you know, so I, I did struggle for my first two years. Um, I had bags and bags of technique, but that's no good to you when you're at jazz college. You have to be able to play the changes. You have to have a good time feel. You have to. Right. You know, and there's a lot of guys that go into these courses who are basically, they can already play. Right. They're just to kind of hang out with other musicians and network and just develop their craft. Whereas I went in, playing Steve Vai material, thinking, I want to I want to be a jazz musician. Um, but very quickly got into the mindset of it, very quickly adopted the competitive nature. And that's not necessarily a good thing, but that's the way that I, it's the way it was at college. It was a meritocracy. It was a competitive kind of environment. And I was like, yep, yeah, I'm up for this big time. Did a huge amount of practice, but unfortunately the tuition wasn't particularly great. Um, again, I think that's something that's probably a little different in the States um, because there's a, the tradition of it is much stronger i think in the u.s i mean it's primarily a u.s based music i mean we're we're learning your effectively your classical music um you know over here but it was a good experience but by the end of it i think i'd realized that there was no way that i was going to be a legit jazz musician i think at the end of my second year i was had, had high hopes that i would move to new york and you know, a lot of this is what jazz musicians think they're going to do. They move sure. to New York. They're going to do the, you know, live in Manhattan and play at the fifty-five bar every night, or at, you know, wherever. Uh, and it's just, it, it wasn't going to be the thing for me. I just wasn't quite there with my playing, and um, you know, that was a lot to do with what we talked about, to do with my ability to articulate in that style. 
so I had to find my voice in other ways and it took a few years to do that, but that's a good thing. You know, you, I think sometimes the things that you can't do, in fact, this is always the case, I guess, the things that you can't do, they push you in other directions that allow you to find your own voice on the instrument. Right. And uh, I'm pretty sure I'd much rather be doing what I'm doing now than still in that mindset of, oh, if only I could just be a little bit better as a legit jazz musician. Right, right, right. That thing, you know, so uh, I'm glad that I, I'm seriously glad that I did the course. It was absolutely fantastic. And it's given me a skill set that would have been very hard to get any other way because I think one of the amazing things about doing any course like that over three or four years is it gives you basically the only time in your life, other than when you're a kid, that you can just do, you can just practice, you can play with other musicians, you know, study, and there's no other responsibilities at all. Back then when I did mine, it was costing me a thousand pounds a year. It was peanuts, you know, now it's crazy money. Right. And it, obviously in the States, it always has been fairly crazy money. Uh, in the UK at the time when I did my jazz degree, it was, I think it cost me three and a half thousand pounds in total to do the whole course. Wow which was nuts, you know, so it was worth doing for sure. Um, it was a good experience. I mean, how did you find the whole thing? Um, well, you know, what's interesting is that when I, when I was trying to figure out where I wanted to go to school, um, I was, I was infatuated with, with all things Texas at the time, because, um, you know, Steve Ray Vaughan had just come out and I was into everything that he was into so when he came out, I was like, oh, my God, who's this guy doing the Albert King licks and doing you know, the Hendrix thing? And, you know, and it has just a little bit of Grant Green and the Georgia. I was like, what? And then I was hearing all these other, of course, all the blues guys from Texas I knew I knew about. And I was a big Johnny Winter fan and I love ZZ Top and so on and so forth. So I thought, Texas, Texas is the place. Right. And um, and Herb Ellis had a school for a while in San Antonio. It was called the Southwest Guitar Conservatory. And I thought, well, it's not Austin, but it's close. And uh, it's Herb Ellis. Sounds great. So I sent away for the information and I got it. And I'm telling my parents about it. I'm like, look, there's this place down. And first of all, my parents were horrified that I was going to be a musician. I mean, let's just be honest. You know, my dad was a lawyer. Uh, I was the youngest of seven kids. Everyone had legit jobs. No one was in the art. I liked my sister. Uh, was a good visual artist and she went to fashion, uh, fashion design school, but she ended up working retail for her life and, you know, never, there was no artsy fartsy types in the caulk household. So my dad was convinced I was going to live in squalor and, you know, I don't know what he thought, but well, I had a pretty good idea what he thought. So uh, when he found out that this place wasn't an accredited uh, place, he's like, there's no way you're going. He didn't even want to go down and look at it. Right. He's like, pick out a school, uh, a state college of your choice and I'll pay for it. And I'm like, okay. So I knew that there was a school in Wisconsin, university, of Wisconsin, Eau Claire. That's where Lyle Mays had gone. And, uh, they were known for having this really, really good jazz school. So I applied there, I got in, uh, and I was ready to go. And then the summer before I was to start in the fall, I found out that there was no guitar teacher up there well there was but he was only a classical guitar teacher and i was like i have no interest in doing that so i didn't go to school my first semester after high school which was horrible i might add all your buddies are gone you feel like a loser you know you're working odd jobs i'm trying to play gay it was it was not good and then i remembered that this guy who um who was the guitar instructor at this uh, jazz camp that I got a little scholarship to go to when I was in high school. He was now running the music department in this university, of Wisconsin, Stevens point. And I really liked him because he, when I went to that, uh, that camp that summer, I was playing a Telecaster and uh, he knew exactly what I was into right from the get go. He said, yeah, I really like that blue stuff and a little bit of that chicken picking and, and, you know, you got some of that, you know, uh, a little bit of, you know, jazzy phrasing. He goes, if you really wanted to take a step into jazz a little bit more with the flavorings you have, you should check out this guy. So he introduced me to Robin Ford and Larry Carlton, two names I'd never even heard before. This is 1982 or, eight, yeah, 82, 83. And um, they weren't in my brother's record collection, so I had no idea who they are. So, and he was very open-minded. And so I remembered that and I thought, and then I found out he was running the jazz department. So I ended up going there and that was the right move because every other state school at that time, it basically 
when you went to a state school, at least in my observation, uh, they were training you to do one of two things. They were either training you to be a band director. And if you were going to be a performer, they were training you to be a lounge musician, which at that time was a, a viable thing. I mean, every Holiday Inn had had bands, you know, and the first set was always, you know, the cocktail set where you're playing standards and then you play the hits of the day or whatever the shtick that the band does, right? Or, or play on a cruise ship. And when they were, I was like, listen, there is no way I'm going to have a big bow tie with one of those roughly shirts and a little tux and playing satin doll on the Lido deck. That's not what I want to do. Uh, and he was cool with that. So it was an environment where I was allowed to, you know, take what I could as far as adding it to my soup, as it were. Um, and then after a couple of years, he kind of got ousted by more kind of traditional. Uh, there was a trumpet player that came that ended up taking over the whole department and a piano player who I, I think I, I remember an exact quote from that. No good music was uh, has ever been produced after 1956, I think was the year you put for some reason. Pretty hardcore. Yeah, really, really hardcore. So, uh, but I found it to be, I mean, I learned a lot of things that I continue to draw upon from that experience. Uh, I didn't end up graduating, which was something my dad always uh, was irked by, even, you know, towards the end, he's like, it always bothered me that you never, that you uh, never graduated from college. I go, yeah, dad, but I ended up being a, a college professor and yes. uh, and so I guess it worked out. <laughs> so I, I, you know, it was, <clears throat> you know, it, it was weird because I took, a, you know, I was I was bothered by a lot of the uh, uh, indifference of what I. They were always, oh, he's a blues guy, and that used to annoy the shit out of me. You know, uh, I was like blues guy. Well, I could play this and this and this, but of course, you bend a string, you're a blues guy. But then if, uh, you know, if someone said you were a rock and roll, you know, I would get, you know, it, depending on, you know, who said what, I would get annoyed. But uh, uh, I found it to be useful in the long run. Um, but but the one thing about, I will say about, for, for whatever reason, that didn't get into my brain, which should have, because I'm sure it was told to me, is that I thought at some moment uh, the changes thing was just going to happen. Right. So, okay, I'm going here. I'm learning my scales. I'm learning the arpeggios. I know that I can play, you know, this mode over these chords and two, five, one does this. And then I'm just going to be able to hear any standard and be able to be able to play over it. And then when it wasn't happening, uh, I was like, well, why is this problem? Every time I, I would get lost in the changes. And what I finally realized later on down the line is like, Hey, asshole. You have to know the song. You have to memorize the melody and the chords of the song. You can't be sitting there looking at the pages and going, oh, here comes that half diminished seventh chord. <laughs> this is always terrifying to me because I have like, I've, I'm convinced I've got the world's worst memory ever. So like learning standards to me was always this horrendously difficult thing where I would like try and shove these chords into my head. Yes. To a certain point in the tune, I'd be like, I never, never used to sit and kind of consciously learn by ear. But like, because after a while, you've learned so many chord progressions, and especially in a jazz context, that you start to be able to hear what's going on without even thinking about it by proxy exactly. learning them. Especially if you're a guy like me who's not kind of naturally an ear based player, has learned the ear based playing by proxy of just playing over the years. Never right. had a kind of gifted, kind of oral kind of way of doing things. And I would spend hours and hours and hours sitting, looking at charts, trying to shove those chord changes into my head just by kind of rote, by memorizing them. And it would never work. I'd always get to a certain point in the tune and be like, what's the next chord? I can't remember the next chord. And then you're in panic mode and you just kind of switch off and just hope for the best and play. And it never works out. And it, it took me a long time to realize that, you know, that will get you so far just kind of by rote, trying to memorize the changes. You've got to be able to hear that harmony really right. well. You've got to be able to have internalized those sounds so that they become like, as opposed to just kind of memorizing each chord one after the other, you kind of just, you can hear what's happening and there's more instinct, just like the way we're talking now. It has to be instinctual. It right. has to be subconscious. And until those tunes are subconscious in your mind and the, the chords are just flowing by, you don't have to think anymore. Exactly. It's going to work. And again, that was a real source of frustration for me because no one ever told me that. I never realized that. I just thought everybody was memorizing these songs by rote. They were just sitting down and memorizing this chord, this chord, this chord, this chord, this 251, this 251. 
It's just, it cannot be the way it works. It has to be internalized and kind of subconscious so that you, you don't have to think about it when you're playing. The moment right. you have to think about those changes in a kind of conscious way, that's where it all falls to pieces for me. It's just a nightmare. I can't well, do I it. think, don't you think a lot of it too is that, you know, there are, <clears throat> there are people who can like play just over changes in the most, you know, they can do do anything like that. That the 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 gentleman, the blind gentleman, last year at the at Andy Woods thing, right? Yeah. You know who played the guitar down on his lap and just did this amazing stuff. But you know, I think there's people that grow up in musical households where that where that music is just around all the time. I mean, I I didn't grow up in a household where I was listening to jazz standards. I think a lot of that, a lot of people who are really you know, especially early on, have a real leg up is because that's their Beatles. You know, that's their Led Zeppelin. They grew up listening to that stuff as just a part of everyday life. So when they're whistling a tune going down the street, it's, it's what we would say a standard to them. It was just, Oh, that's those songs. <laughs> you know I, what I mean? I remember really viscerally because my parents are both, my dad is an exceptional guitar player. I can't remember if we talked about this when we were out in, um, in near Nashville, but, uh, he is a really exceptional guitar player. He basically can play all that Tommy Emmanuel stuff, Doyle Dykes, Leo Oh, jeez. All of it. And he works it out by ear. He was actually one of the first guys to actually start tabbing stuff out on the internet, on forums, and, you know, distributing these uh, transcriptions he'd done of Tommy Emmanuel's stuff. And a truly exceptional guitar player, but not an improviser at all. Not a schooled theoretical guitar player. I, I, don't, I don't necessarily mean that. It, you know, school is probably the wrong word, but not a guy who studied theory in any deep way. He understands some theory. And they were both my parents' folk musicians. So my mum is a poet and a folk musician. And my dad is a folk musician. They ran folk clubs all the way through my childhood, you know, and, and still they've just moved back up to local to here and they don't actually run a folk club anymore. But everywhere they've lived over the years, they've, they've run folk clubs. So when I was a kid, I heard a lot of music. And they had very deep record collections, you know, ranging from lots of very traditional and more modern folk music to uh, blues material. All the, the claps and all the cream stuff was in my house, all the Led Zeppelin, Deep uh, deep Purple, um, you know, a huge swathe of music. But what wasn't in that collection at all was any jazz. Oh, uh, interesting. Nothing. There was some kind of crossover stuff, so some Joni Mitchell stuff that crossed over into that territory. But when you think Joni Mitchell, you tend to think singer-songwriter, and then you've got albums with with Jacko on and, you know, the band with Pat Metheny. So there was some jazz crossover stuff going on, but there was no jazz at all. And my dad had one album that was a jazz album, which was Stanley Jordan's Magic Touch album. Oh, yeah. Which is an amazing album. But I remember every time this album went on, having this really visceral experience as a kid of just thinking, this sounds really, really strange. I don't understand the sound that is happening here. So we did a um, an arrangement of Alan Rigby on that album, which is, as a young guitar player, I was fascinated by because purely from a technical standpoint, I knew he was playing with both hands on the neck. Right. Eight, to me at the time, it's like, oh my God, eight finger tapping. That's amazing. But listening to this very dark minor harmony that I'd never, ever heard before, being quite put off by it at the time, later on that transition to being you know, all of that harmony I was obsessed with, but it was very, very alien to me as a kid. So I definitely didn't have that experience of um, hearing changes, you know, chords that are unrelated to one another or key changes happening, you know, every other bar or whatever in any, any context at all, all the harmony I was listening to in my formative years growing up from the, you know, a, a baby right the way through to the age of 15, 16 was all very diatonic folk based harmony so uh it's quite interesting when i i remember very clearly the moment where i started to be able to hear how jazz lines were threading through harmony because the first when i started to listen to jazz i couldn't hear the harmony at all i could just hear this disparate series of chords and sounds i knew i liked it but if you if you'd taken the changes away i couldn't have heard the harmony in the lines at all it just wasn't in my ear yet and I remember very distinct moments where I started to be able to hear, you know, lines threading through changes. And then once that's in your ear, then obviously you're off on a roll. You know, you can really start to 
Because of course, it goes without saying, unless you can hear that sound in your head, there's no way you'll be able to create it externally on your instrument. I mean, that's just a very formative stage. But people who go through that stage when they're they're listening to that music from the age of five onwards, I mean, that is a serious, as you say, a serious leg up in terms of like that sound being in your ear, hearing that harmony every day. Right. That's amazing to me. I mean, not not that I would ever feel jealous about somebody else's musical experience because my musical upbringing was really rich and very varied and so on and so forth. And the reason I play guitar is because my dad. But yeah, that would have been cool to have that sound in my ears from five, you know, that would have made such a difference. You know, when you mentioned the, uh, the folk clubs, you know, I'm kind of, uh, I have a mild obsession with uh, Davy Graham. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. And now, did your dad ever encounter? Did he ever have him play it? Oh no, man. no, no! Didn't have him play, but was very into him. Yeah, because yeah, that is a fascinating character, that fella. Because he, you know, most of the time just playing like on a like a J forty five or a J thirty or something like that, and would be doing. You know, he'd do some kind of jazzy tunes, you know, and then he would do his East India. He he discovered, you know, I, from what I understand, he made up Dad Gad. He's the original guy. And then he would do that, you know, kind of East Indian thing and so on and so forth. And then would do like some ragtime stuff. And so just, I find it fascinating. And, uh, and I hear some of that old stuff. It's like, this guy was badass. And then That's when you- interesting. Now you, now you mention it, actually, I do remember some of those albums also twisting my ear at that age, you know, maybe 11, 12, you know, hearing some stuff. And my dad later on saying to me when I actually started playing guitar, oh, because he used to, you know, give me some of this stuff to listen to. And of course he was hoping that I would be super into this stuff and would take after him in a way. But right. I just went in the total opposite direction, like into the shred world because it wasn't what he was doing. And it's, it was, it was what I was interested in at the time. Sure. But thinking back now, listening to some of that stuff, I, I absolutely do remember some of it again, having a sound which didn't make sense to my ears at the time. And therefore it flagged up in my mind. I mean, there was, there was loads of stuff like that. Um, I'm trying to think of, um, Suzanne Vega, right? Here's another example. Nothing to do with guitar particularly, but certain things that you hear when you're younger. So I think it must have been my first time hearing Lydian Harmony. And she okay. had and also very beautiful, rich 80s kind of guitar. Like I know it's a, I know it's cheesy, considered to be cheesy these days, but such a different guitar sound to the sounds that I was used to hearing. These kind of what I consider now as a child of the 80s to be beautiful. Uh, classic guitar tones. I know a lot of guitar players cannot stand those sounds. <laughs> I do love them. And again, it was the first time as, as a singer songwriter, she was using some quite interesting harmony um, stuff that, you know, same with Joni Mitchell again, open tuning, right. strange chords, um, Tracy Chapman, some of the stuff that was going on there as well. That wasn't that complicated, but was outside of my wheelhouse at the time. So again, very rich musical upbringing, but n nothing that's that kind of steered into the territory of, jazz particularly which is quite interesting i'm not sure why my ear went in that direction actually now we think about it but uh, i certainly wasn't destined to become a folk musician let's put it that way uh, well it's 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 a fascinating thing the thing that always fascinated me about the davy graham thing was that you know he was just one guy in his acoustic guitar going all over the world doing crazy shit and you know putting it all together in a big stew i mean that was one thing i was that was great but then i just could not believe well i can believe it and uh, is that jimmy page just said uh, that tune's mine now. <laughs> I mean, it's one of those things where like, you know, couldn't you just at least say, yeah, you know, this is an homage to Davy Graham. It's like, nope, that song's mine now. You know, every, what I'm talking about folks is when he does that tune white summer, uh, it's, it's a version of a Davy Graham song called she walks through the bazaar, which is a variation of she walks through the uh, something. It's a, it's an Irish uh, folk tune that he put into dad gad, Davy Graham did and came up with this kind of East Indian twist to it. And then, uh, Jimmy Page took it and did it as white summer. And, and then that, uh, and then black mountainside, uh, is a Burt Jance tune. Uh, and it's, you know, again, uh, there's one thing to do an homage. There's another thing to just go again, that's mine now. And I'm going to take that, but you know, yeah. So I, I got to see Yanch play before he died because my dad's was such a big fan in Renborn and you know that yeah. kind of that's obviously his wheelhouse and there's a there's a bit of me I've tried over the years to kind of learn some Tommy Emmanuel stuff and some Yanch stuff it never goes very well because I never did any finger picking um but I do love all that stuff you know 
I think if again, it's inevitable that if you hear that every day of your life since being oh, born, absolutely, yeah, yeah, it's like in your, it's like bone marrow. It's in your bones. You know, there's nothing you can do about it. It's just part of your heritage and your sound. So, um, but yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Like as the years have gone by, he's become very interested in what I do, and he's actually now linking this back to what we we're talking about before as a fingerstyle guitar player. He picked up a plectrum. He has over the years many times. But because of his association with kind of um, not just British folk music, because obviously it's a, a, a very uh, strong British tradition of folk music, but the American tradition as well is uh, very much revered in the UK, but it links in very strongly, obviously, with the bluegrass side of things. So he, right. independently of me, of us, you know, my dad and I talking about technique on guitar, he got into the cross-picking thing. And again, maybe there's a genetic thing to it because he also finds it really, really difficult so we're kind of we're kind of linked in that respect that both the, the quail genes are obviously not meant for alternate picking, <laughs> but coming up with the ways of more inventive ways, quite perhaps. Possibly, quite well, yeah, we'll see. But yeah, <laughs> well, you know, there is, you know, there's that, you know, that English sense of, uh, you know, the English folk tunes and so on and so forth, which are, that run through. You know, that you can hear in the pop music of, you know, the Beatles and everybody else. That's just so cool. You know what I mean? That that adds that uh, just that added melodicism that um, that's just a, it's a different take than the, the American aspect of things. But uh, and, and of course, you merge that with kind of the, you know, bluegrass and blues and jazz and so on and so forth. And it's a it's a potent rue. Yeah. In a big way. Yeah. And the, the thing I love about the the American tradition, like the bluegrass tradition, um, is the improvised improvisational nature of it, you know? Right. Same thing with jigs and reels, you know, you go and see a great, um, uh, like you, you go over to Dublin or somewhere and see a great jigs and reels kind of session going on. There is a language involved, you know, you, bluegrass players, you watch again, you know, any of the, the, the classic bluegrass guys. I mean, I love listening to Tony Rice. I love listening to, to any of those guys. But being over with Andy at the uh, the camp last year, you know, listening to that session they did in the opening kind of uh, session for the for the right. camp, just listening to these guys improvise in a world that is it, it's a weird kind of link. There is a link to the jazz scene that I went through because you are effectively outlining chord changes, but there's a whole different language involved with it that is just right. completely alien to me. And in fact, I find it much much harder to play over those slightly more bare bones chord progressions right. than I do over more complex jazz harmony, where the harmony is almost in a jazz context. It's almost the vehicle that makes the lines that you play interesting because the chord changes are moving by so fast and you've got, you know, so many key changes. So long as you're sticking to the, uh, the, the chords, you know, you're outlining the chord changes, the lines that you play by default are going to sound relatively interesting because of the harmony. Right. Whereas in a bluegrass context, You've not got that much harmony to play with, but it's enough harmony that you can really mess up. But also you've got to really play inside the language, know what you're doing, and be creative with that at the same time. Right. That to me is fairly mind-blowing. That's a, a school I've never, ever investigated, and I really would love to. But obviously over here it's a little trickier because there's less people to kind of play that stuff with. But it was a real eye-opener that evening in particular, watching some of those guys kind of jam. It's like, whoa. Yes, indeed. It's, it's a beautiful thing, without, without doubt. <laughs> And then, of course, there's the kind of the whole East Indian way of going about where there's just a drone going on. And, <laughs> and, and the whole idea of just making long impro improvisation sound cool over one chord is a whole nother thing, you know, yeah. uh, which nice can be enjoyable. I, enjoy, I enjoy all of the above. You know, it's fun to play over changes. It's fun to just. It's fun to just play over a straight blues. It's fun to play over a blues with more sophisticated changes. And it's fun to just play over one chord. You know, it's. Well, man, it's, stand, it's, standing next to you on stage, jamming over a, 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 I think it was a three chord blues was uh, sticking a, you know, a massive smile on my face. So, <laughs> you know, I wasn't, wasn't worrying about a lack of chords in that context. It was amazing. <laughs> it was awesome. Thank you. Likewise, my friend. Well, hopefully we'll get to jam again sooner than later. Yeah, that would be amazing. Absolutely. You know, I was planning on coming over there uh, in April, but um, my guy Dudley, who usually sets up my tours over there, was had some personal things and couldn't do it. Dudley. Yeah, yeah. So unfortunately, we had to uh, postpone that. So we're just going to go over to uh, uh, Germany and Italy for a couple weeks, and then. Uh, but hopefully, I'll get back to the UK. 
And hopefully, you know, the world will be intact, Tom. There's some crazy times going on. Uh, <laughs> it's just, it's just, just crazy. Well, it was crazy when we were over in the States, or when I was over in the States with you, and it's got crazier since then. So uh, let's yeah. trajectory changes direction. Yeah, we can, well, it can only, it can only get better. Yeah, we're in the midst of, uh, you know, we have to play in Youngstown, Ohio on Saturday night, which is, you know, less than 50 miles away from where that catastrophic uh, pestilential train wreck took place with the mushroom cloud of toxins belt belching forth into the sky. So, so that's you make fun. With three limb, three, three arms, sorry, as opposed to just the two. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So that's interesting. And then, uh, but hey, you must, uh, you must persevere from what I understand. And I see you've got your Bucky's mug, ladies and gentlemen. For those who are unaware of the glory of Bucky's, it is perhaps the greatest of all the gas stations. Tom, you're not going to believe this. My wife had this list that she found on uh, Twitter or something. It was some guy who's some kind of nationally known reviewer of this, that, and the next thing. And he had the top 10 gas stations in the United States. And Bucky's was like number five. And I'm like, what? You know, and they were named, and they were like naming Wawa and this place. I'm like, I've been to all those places. There's nothing like Bucky's. It is a citadel of caloric annihilation. Do you, do you 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 won't have any idea of the number of dreams I've had after after going to Bucky's that involved Bucky's? <laughs> it is the place that dreams are made. It's amazing. Well, we've been doing a lot of traveling down south, and without fail. We stop at Bucky's at every opportunity. And what's so funny is that we've realized that uh, starting about 150 miles out, they, you start seeing the signs. It's 150 miles. And then, and then you know, every five miles or so, there's another sign with some other alluring, you know, forget, yeah, the brisket's coming, you know, the, the beaver bites, you know, what's, and so by the time, you know, you're holding all of your fluids for, to going to their, their most glorious bathrooms. And then you just go in there and you just like, oh my God, what am I going to eat? And then you just, you overspend, you get all this stuff. And uh, I mean, Toby's got socks. He's got a, um, you know, he's got this, uh, well, Dylan's got a, a sweatshirt. I think he's wearing it as we speak. And uh, yeah, we are Bucky's crazy without a doubt. It just blew my mind that, you know, it's a gas station and you can buy like, I don't know, barbecues that will yes. fulfill the needs of your entire street there. Exactly. Exactly. It's insane. Absolutely insane. I loved it. It was, it was awesome. Thank Are you. There... Thank you for introducing me to the delights of Bucky's, Greg. Oh, you are welcome. If only you were with us in, in, uh, we, we were, we were just out on the West coast. And we were staying with this really nice couple that put us up in, in Venice Beach. We stayed there for like five days. They're, they love, they put up bands all the time and really nice house, really nice area. You know, at one point we were, we were putting our, our, our trailer or kind of getting it into their alley up into their, their little, you know, garage area. And the neighbor helps us out. And uh, as he's help pushing him, oh, thanks, buddy. And as he walks away, the Tom we're staying with, he goes, that's the guy who's the producer for Breaking Bad and uh, Better Call Saul. I'm like, what? Wow. Crazy. So anyway, one night we get back from our gig and they're like, oh, if you're hungry for street tacos, there's this place up on Lincoln. Just walk up here, take go to the road, take a left. There's Dollar Tacos. And I'm here to tell you that that is our new buck. That's our West Coast Bucky's move. Now, we went there every night. And it's just this this truck that pulls out. It's not a food truck per se because they take everything out and they put up these little tents with like, you know, lights and Christmas lights and whatnot. And then they have kind of like the Euro thing, but that's the pastor meat that they'll shave off. And they had this giant vat for all the carne asada. And you just go up there and say, I'll have six tacos. And they just, what do you, what, what do you want? I'll take the asada. Boom, 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 boom. He cuts it up right then and there. All the different salsas and stuff are right there. Next, and then, and then it was just unbelievable. And then, uh, the burritos were just as good. So we went there every night for three days running. I need the Google map pin and you need to send it to me. And I'm going yes. to the point of going there. Yes. That sounds oh amazing. my God. It was so good. That was, that was fantastic. It was, what's just so funny about it is you're in, you know, you're in LA. So everything is horribly expensive. And then here you are at this place where it's a dollar a taco and it's unbelievable.
It's got to be unheard of these days. Yes. A unique situation. Oh, it was so fantastic. Wow. Anyway, enough about food. I'm getting hungry. Well, listen, my friends, so great talking with you. I'm glad you're doing great. And uh, I look forward to crossing paths hopefully sooner than later. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, take care of yourself, my friend, and let us talk soon. All right. Nice to speak to you, Greg. Likewise. Have a good one. Thanks. See you later. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for tuning in, ladies and gentlemen. We absolutely appreciate you caring and checking out these podcasts. We certainly have a good time doing them. Again, it's brought to you by our friends at Wildwood Guitars in Louisville, Colorado. Don't be afraid to go to wildwoodguitars.com. Check out what they have going on. I actually go there every night and visit their new arrivals page. It's kind of a kind of an illness, really. And, of course, our friends at Fishman Transducers, fishman.com, making all the greatest accoutrements for your stringed instruments. Stay tuned for more. Greg Koch here. Thanks so much for tuning in.